Hello and welcome to the Ori Clark Audio Quick Guide, a straightforward conversation about a range of topics and issues commonly handled by Ori Clark experts for their clients. My name's Dominic Frisby and joining me on today's episode are two chartered accountants, chartered tax advisors and partners at Ori Clark. They are Emma Crowley and Ian Phipps and today's hot topic is audits. So, Emma, why don't we kick off with you? Who needs an audit in the UK? So the rules are pretty complex, but we'll try and keep them simple. So generally speaking, it's any UK company or limited liability partnership that isn't classified as small under the Companies Act or wasn't small in their previous period. How small is small? So small is if you have turnover less than 10.2 million total assets less than 5.1 million and fewer than 50 employees. If you meet two of those criteria, you are classed as small. So that's who needs an audit. And you've you've mentioned a couple of others, listed companies, insurance companies. Yeah, so there are certain other times when you would need an audit. So if you're a listed company, things like insurance companies can need an audit. And also if 10% or more of the members of the company have requested an audit. So there are other things as well as the, the size constraints. Okay, now Ian, you are the uh, resident expert on cock-ups. What, <laughs> what are the yep. biggest cock-ups when it comes to an audit? I think the biggest cock-up when it comes to an audit, thank you for that, Dominic, by the way, is that um, for a company to qualify as small as, as Emma's just been through, if it's part of a group, the whole group has to qualify as small for it to meet those audit exemptions. So what what often happens is that a UK company in itself can be very small, a subsidiary of an overseas business, but the overseas business could be quite large. And what people miss is the fact that that UK company will need an audit just by virtue of the size of its group. And again, so those conditions that Emma read, those criteria need to be met by the group as a whole. There are some slight tweaks for intergroup trading, but but broadly those numbers don't change that much. So broadly, if the group's in that sort of size range, it will need an audit, and that often gets missed. I mean, people often say, "Well, does it really matter?" And the, you know, the answer is, if it's not done, there's there, there's various potential implications, not least is the fact that the directors have failed in their formal duties and responsibilities. It could be a problem if you want to sell that company in the future, which is some larger groups often do. An incoming auditor is also going to have to audit the prior year and potential cash flow numbers for the year previous to that. So you could effectively have three years audit work in one go to bring just to get one year up to date. If you can't do that effectively, the accounts may need to be qualified and that could affect the company's credit rating and obviously just doesn't look very good on the company's record. Okay, so you need to have an audit. Then what? What what is it? (laughs) You may well ask. So the sort of definition of it, I suppose, is that it's an independent examination of the company's accounts and it's meant to be there to protect the shareholders of the company who obviously aren't always the same as the people running the company. In practice as well, there are other people who rely on the audit, say people like banks, creditors of the company, they they will rely on um, a set of audited accounts. So an audited set of accounts will have in it an audit report, which is actually personally signed by the auditor. And that is confirming a amongst other things, that the accounts give what's called a true and fair view. 
which means they've been completed in accordance with all of either UK or international accounting standards and also UK Companies Act requirements. So there are some pretty complicated accounting standards that are also very detailed in their sort of requirements. And the other thing is that to be what's called true and fair, the accounts have to be free from what's called material misstatement, which is a lovely auditing term. What does it mean? A key question, the subject to much debate. It's a subjective judgment of such an amount. I mean, we it's, it's almost impossible to say, but it's a subjective judgment of an amount that if incorrect in the accounts would affect a user's view of those accounts. And of course, the more complicated these accounts are and the larger the accounts are, you know, you've got investment houses and credit agencies that are reviewing these things for numbers. So you get quite pernickety on terms of what they may class as material. This is the auditor's great thing is to actually try to work out what material should be for those sets of accounts. And it's one of the key things at the planning stage where... And it's usually calculated as a percentage of either turnover, assets, costs, um, but it could be a combination of all of those or, you know, some other criteria that, that you feel in that particular set of circumstances is, is an appropriate number. I think one of the key things, again, to bear in mind here is as an auditor, we're looking at it from the company's perspective, not the group's perspective. So if, if it is a subsidiary of a large group, a number that is completely insignificant to that group. You know, the US finance director probably wouldn't even, you know, it was probably a rounding error on his balance sheet, on his spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. um, but to us, that could be a material number and we have to investigate it and we have to ask for information. And I was just, I would always say it's the subject of, well, the source of a lot of angst between auditors and overseas finance directors. Why are you bothering to look at that? But obviously, we're, we're having to sign something to say that this company is materially correct, not the group. We quite often have to explain that in quite a lot of detail, quite several a few times. times. <laughs> <laughs> Several times, yeah, exactly. Our next header is going concern. Yes, so going concern. So this is a big concept for an auditor. Part of our audit includes considering whether the company is likely to remain a going concern, so it's likely to remain in business. But it's for a period of 12 months and one day from the signing of the audit report, not from the date that you're preparing the accounts up to. So if you do the audit quite a long time after the year end of the company, you can be looking almost two years ahead from the end of the, the company's year. We have to report on it in our audit report. We have to actually say that we have looked at it and we're, that we're satisfied that the going concern basis is appropriate. So it is an area that we have to really look at carefully. And particularly since COVID, obviously, it's become an even bigger area of concern because with um, so many businesses struggling, it's been something we've really had to look at carefully. Where you have a UK subsidiary, quite often it'll be the case that they are reliant on their parent company for financial support in times of hardship. And in those circumstances, we actually have to look at the parent company's information, their accounts, their cash flows. This is another um, cause of angst with, with foreign finance directors, because of course, in their mind, you're auditing the UK company. Why do you need to be asking for the parent company accounts, cash flows, particularly when they might not be publicly available information in the other country. So it can, can be tricky, can be quite time consuming to perform the work that we need to do. Um, but I would say to companies, be prepared that you may well have to provide a lot more information on the parent company than you may otherwise have thought you would. Fraud. Yes. I imagine there's a lot of it in auditing. <laughs> there are. I mean, there's obviously lots of high profile fraud cases. I mean, and... 
you know, and we and we see them almost daily in the press. It just we look we look at them and just think, you know, there but for the grace of maybe. But um, why didn't the auditors spot that? Why didn't they see this? You know, this is the question that the press often asks, and you know, this was audited by X Y Z. Why didn't they spot that? The finance director was on the take or whatever, and actually, it's a it's a really tricky one. And it's been, I mean, even when I trained in those dim and distant past, there was a phrase at the time that was, "The auditor's a watchdog, not a bloodhound," which was that you know you're there just to oversee and is the are the accounts true and fair? You're not, well, not there as a sort of investigative forensic person to try and uncover these things. So that used to be the thing. That language has changed a lot in the in the last few years or in, in sort of for quite a while now. But it's still the main function of the audit is still not to find fraud. It's to just confirm whether those accounts show a true and fair view. So fraud is not a main subject of trying of doing an audit. Obviously a fraud could be so small that actually the impact of that fraud doesn't affect the overall image of the accounts to a user. So, you know, that's where it, that's where the line is. However, nowadays, procedures and testing should be done with the potential to discover fraud in mind. And actually now, I think because of all the high-profile cases, the auditors have to now actually report on what they're doing on every job as part of the audit report. I mean, obviously, we do look at it and we have discovered them. And, you know, when you do you have to consider materiality for the financial statements as well as the implications of that fraud. But what we would say, they can be hard to find, um, particularly if there's collusion with a third party, if you've got a supplier of that company who's colluding. But we try. So I need an audit. I don't want it to be too expensive. I don't want it to be too big a drain on my time. How do I prepare? So the absolute key is plan ahead and make sure that the people in the finance team have got enough time in their diaries to prepare the information and to answer the questions during the audit. We find particularly if the audit is not being done on site at the client's offices, which of course is more and more the case at the moment, it's very easy for people to ignore emails. Whereas if you're in the office asking for the information, people tend to be more able to provide it quickly, but definitely plan ahead book time out in your diary for when the audit's going to be happening. Um, there are some things you need to think of ahead before your year end's even finished. So things like if you have properties, they may need to be valued and they'll have to be valued as at the year end. So you may need to have arranged a valuation. Um, stock, if, you've, if you hold stock, share options. There are various things like that that you definitely need to plan ahead for. And make sure that you've got as much information as possible prepared before the audit even starts, because then there'll be fewer questions that you need to answer. Answer questions timiously and efficiently and do answer the question you're being asked, not what you want to answer. If you're being asked by an auditor for certain information, that's because they need that information. So different information won't won't work. You'll just get more questions. And the other thing that I would say is, in our experience, UK audit requirements are really stringent. They're very, very detailed. And we hear from clients quite often that the work we're having to do is more than they have to do with a full audit in, in a different country. So I would definitely give a health warning that UK audits are pretty thorough. And therefore, if we're asking for more information than you're used to providing, please bear with us. It's because we have to ask for it. Gotcha. One piece of advice, Ian. I think, and one word, communicate. It's the classic thing. I think it's really what Emma's just been talking through. And um, I mean, it's just ensuring there's ongoing and an open dialogue between you and the auditor. 
and just keep that dialogue going in terms of planning, knowing what's needed, knowing what's going to be required, provision of information, keeping lines of communication open at a senior level as well, because I think quite often the you know someone in the accounts department's being left to deal with something, and you know decision makers higher up the tree sort of tend to leave it to the end, whereas actually it's quite good if you've got that dialogue going all the all the way through, and obviously you know before the audit's finally closed off, going through any issues that you've raised and things, and just being open to those comments that we make hopefully to sort of provide some useful feedback to the company on systems, controls, etc. Communicate. One simple word. Great stuff. Well, that is what you have both just been doing. And you have heard everything you need to know about audits beautifully summarised by Ian Phipps and Emma Crowley. So thank you very much for listening. And if you want to find out more about anything we've just been talking about, you can find more information in the resource library section at auriclark.com. And if you can't find what you need, then send us an email, contact at auriclark.com, and one of our experts will get back to you and tell you everything you need to know. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Until then, goodbye.